This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I'm so glad you're here with me today on the 190th episode of Self-Work. I started Self-Work almost four years ago to reach out to those of you who might already be very interested in emotional or psychological issues, to those of you who might just have been diagnosed with depression or anxiety, or you're having a relationship problem that you just may need a different perspective on, or even to those of you who would never darken the door of a therapist or don't think you would, but are just curious enough to listen to a psychologist like me and hear at least what I have to say. You know, there's a psychological dynamic called approach avoidance, and it's defined as when something you desire has both positive and negative implications. With this conflict, the goals are incompatible and indecisiveness is the result. Let's say, for example, your favorite comfort food is in the pantry or in the fridge or wherever, and you have this desire for some comfort, which we probably all do at this point, but you also know that your cholesterol will go up or you may have to walk another mile or whatever, so you can be somewhat indecisive because basically the goals of comfort and probably good health are incompatible. But it's interesting that the same words, approach, avoidance, are used in considering relationships. It can lead to a true deadlock and constantly recycle itself with misunderstanding, grief, hurt, and resentment steadily increasing. Basically, it's when one person does most of the approaching, if not all, and the other's response is to withdraw. That may sound very familiar to you, and if it does, there's a way to tweak this process that will really help. Because we think of approach as being the more controlling of the two energies, especially if the approach is made in anger. But my observations through the years have been that withdrawal is incredibly potent. So in today's episode of Self-Work, sponsored again by BetterHelp, we're going to talk about how that very power, the power of withdrawal, what that's like and what you can do about it, what we always talk about on Self-Work, what you can do about it. The listener email for today is from a young woman who read a blog post of mine on Perfectly Hidden Depression, and now she's become a listener to the podcast, and wants to know how to find a therapist. This is probably in the top five of all questions I receive. I'm actually hoping one day to write a companion book for therapists for their own training and how to work with someone who's a perfectionist, but that's still to come. When I do, and that may be sooner rather than later, I'll let you know. Maybe we'll have a whole list of providers who have taken the training. But today, I'll give my suggestions. I will say that I've been delighted to hear from many of you that your own therapists suggested the book Perfectly Hidden Depression to you, and that in sifting through and in working through the different exercises, you're doing it with your therapist, and I think that is fantastic. But today we're going to talk about the power of withdrawal, the power that to me is just as potent, if not more potent, than anger and aggression. So let's sit back and learn together. Goodbye. Those are powerful words because some loss 
feels intolerable. I actually looked up the movies that are the most vivid and most excruciating to watch where there are these powerful goodbyes. The list from 15 to 1 provided by the Cinemaholic were Rain Man, again, that's number 15, Goodwill Hunting, Kramer vs. Kramer, Boyhood, Castaway, Gone with the Wind, Lost in Translation, E.T., One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Stand By Me, Manhattan, Before Sunrise, Number 3, Casablanca, Number 2, Schindler's List, and first, Sophie's Choice, a movie I've never watched because of the depth of pain of a mother watching her child led away by the Nazis. I was rearing my own child, and I couldn't even stand seeing that scene, so I've never watched it. Saying goodbye, ending relationships, not knowing what will happen next after perhaps a relationship is over, it's a fear we all have when we've truly loved. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is that when someone is unsure about whether or not they want to stay in a relationship, be it a marriage or some other meaningful relationship, that very stance gives them power. It may be power they don't want, but it's inherent in their feeling of uncertainty. You become more powerful because you've let the cat out of the bag that you're considering that a goodbye is potentially real for you. All of a sudden, even if you've said countless times how unhappy you've been, the other person will feel lost, like they've been hit with a two-by-four. Goodbye is now a real possibility. What I try to do is to help that person react to that knowledge in a way that's helpful and healthy, rather than adding to whatever chaos already exists. Yet this episode isn't on ending a relationship. Perhaps I should write about that because those kinds of endings are such a part of the culture of divorce. But what I really want to focus on is the approach avoidance dynamic that I talked about in the intro, where goodbye or withdrawal, ending the argument by disappearing, escaping, avoiding, sulking, or what's called stonewalling, meaning that you simply refuse to talk, all are methods of withdrawal, of refusing to engage. The most intense is what's called emotional cutoff, which does end a relationship and very quickly. It's as if you never existed for the person who cuts you off, whether you're their parent, their child, their spouse, or their friend. And these strategies are very powerful and sadly are a regular part of many relationships. To touch on stonewalling, it's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, defined by Julie and John Gottman very well-known marriage researchers. Now, what are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? They're all predictors of divorce. The others are defensiveness, criticism, and contempt. Stonewalling is the most dramatic sign of withdrawal that you can muster or have used against you. Thus, its status as a relationship-ending choice. And I've known people who have gone days, if not weeks, without speaking to their partner. Emotional cutoff is carrying that into eternity or seeming eternity and cutting off someone from even existing in your world. It can be painful, extremely painful, to have this happen to you as you're left with your memories, often not even knowing what went wrong, nor are you necessarily given any explanation. It leaves you emotionally dangling for quite a while, not knowing whether to chase after them or let them go. Of course, there's the added pain that they often take children with them or other people that you love, You're not given a chance to heal together. It's just over. This happened with me many years ago when my best friend at the time ended our relationship. 
There had been signs that I didn't want to see before then, that I chalked up to grieving or other changes in her life and mine. But now I see it for what it was. The relationship always had the power to implode. It took me years to heal, but I've gone on. Again, it's much harder when the people involved are your parents or your children, and it can leave a tremendous void that has to be grieved. But let's go from stonewalling and emotional cutoff to the less dramatic but also powerful choice to withdraw or avoid. But first, here's a quick offer from BetterHelp that will save you money and allow you to give therapy a try. After doing telehealth now for four months, I become a believer in its convenience and therapeutic process for sure. I was delighted when BetterHelp reached out to me as a potential sponsor. What exactly is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is an online therapy service that will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not really self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. I also tried this out, of course, for my self-work listeners, and I was very impressed with the two counselors I tried. There's a broad range of expertise, and you're actually matched to the therapist that they believe will work best for you. You can have video sessions, phone sessions, you can text, and actually it's much less expensive than quote-unquote normal therapy. And BetterHelp is rated number one by so many platforms that specialize in trying to help you find the best therapy online for you. There's a special offer for self-work listeners where you get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com slash self-work. That's trybetterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash self-work. You can begin getting help today, and I highly recommend it. So give it a try. So now let's talk about withdrawal. Not to end a relationship like ghosting in a dating relationship, but when it's used, avoid or escape. Let's go back for a moment to the approach avoidance dynamic. One person is usually the one who approaches, who brings things up that are more difficult to talk about, whether it's making a hard decision, whether it's about disappointment or hurt or anger, maybe it's about money. But whatever it is, it's not an easy topic. So someone approaches and the other scoots out the back door whether by selling up or actually physically leaving. And then they avoid. Of course, the approacher might ramp up their approach at this point, and the avoider takes even greater steps to avoid. They become angry themselves, they switch roles, and take on the approacher role or actually the aggressor role. Then the initial approacher also leaves the scene and becomes the withdrawer. You can see how this is a terrible cycle to be in. Nothing gets discussed rationally. Both people are angry or defensive. Things are said like, you always come at me, or you're never there for me, and off they go. Usually when I begin to introduce the description of this dynamic to couples, I'll hear, but if I don't bring it up, no one will, that's from the approacher, or they won't sit down and talk normally, so of course I get mad, obviously also the approacher. And the avoider, what do I hear? I've tried to talk and it never ends up anywhere, so I've given up. Or I hear, I've never been good at conflict. I hate it. So we're going to look at these four very commonplace justifications for a second and what you could do instead. Again, as we said in the intro, what you can do about it. Let's take the statement, if I don't bring it up, no one will. 
First of all, this completely misses the idea that difficult conversations need to occur carefully and with the agreement of both parties. Sometimes I tell people who have literally the same argument over and over that they have to consider that topic a minefield. And it's if they just go running onto the minefield, they're going to get blown up or the couple will. You have to try to see where the mines are and be very careful. For example, you'd never walk into your workplace and say, we've got to talk about this now, unless it's a true emergency. You'd say, I'd like to meet tomorrow to discuss XYZ and get everyone on board, get their minds thinking about it. Now, the quick response I hear is, but if I ask, they'll just say no. And my response, is the way you're doing it now working? It seems to me it just makes you and your partner mad. So talking about talking might work better. The fancy word for this is meta-communication, talking about talking. But my observation has been and my experience has been that asking about a conversation is huge. And it gives the other person a heads up that you see a need for this particular conversation that may not be easy, but it's important, at least to you. And guess what? If it's important to your partner, it needs to be important to you unless, perhaps, they're being totally irrational. But even then, you need to be interested in what's brought them to the edge of rationality. Something is driving that, and staying interested and curious is essential to a healthy relationship. So the point here is to give the other person a chance by giving them a heads up and saying, I'd like to talk about this. Can we talk about it tonight, or would tomorrow be better? Give them some sense of choice in the conversation. And then you could even add, and you know, I think we've tried to have this conversation before, and I know I get mad, so I'm really going to try to not do that. And I'd so appreciate it if we both came to the table with that attitude. Sometimes I've even suggested that the couple pick a room that they usually have quite a good time in, like maybe they entertain a lot and they love their dining room or something like that. And so they go into the dining room and sit down logically and talk and try to stay as objective as possible. Again, you're avoiding those minds in that minefield. So let's hear about this second statement that approachers say. They won't sit down with me, so of course I get mad. The point here is that the approacher is saying if their partner changed, they'd change. As if there's no choice in becoming angry or not. And there is always choice. Now, you may be waiting too long and your resentment has grown. You may not have forgiven and keep bringing up the same subject. You may not be recognizing how you're coming across. That's sort of hard to do, to recognize your own impact on other people. You may have a much larger toleration of conflict than your partner. But instead of getting mad, which again is a choice, you can say or write or somehow communicate about your own feelings. I don't want to get mad. I don't want to feel that I have to get mad to get your attention. So what can we do to make it safer to talk about this? Again, this is metacommunication, talking about talking. And you're inviting your partner to bring a much calmer head to the conversation as well. And even say, we'll only talk about this for 10 minutes. We'll see how that goes. And if we start going down the same rabbit hole, let's stop and try again. We've got to learn how to do this. Or even better, I'd really like for both of us to learn how to do this. I think it's important. But remember, anger is your choice. 
Now let's move on to the avoider side of the dynamic. He or she says, I've tried to talk and it never ends up anywhere, so I've given up. And they withdraw. Once again, you can hear the justification, or hopefully you can. Second is also blaming the other person for your inaction or withdrawal. And again, withdrawal is a choice or a bad habit. Giving up is tantamount to acting as if you don't care or you're not invested in your relationship. I've had people say, for example, I don't understand or having a problem with it, and it's not a problem for me, so I don't want to discuss it. Whoa! (laughs) Committed relationships are hard work, and giving up is simply not an option or saying you don't care because it's not a problem for you. I promise you, if it's a problem for your partner, it's a problem for you. But... Continuing to do something over and over that's not working is also the definition of insanity. So if you've been giving up and withdrawing, obviously that has not worked. Here's the last justification. I've never been good at conflict. I hate it. This last one is basically saying that because you're not proficient at something, there's no reason to learn how or to change or to grow. Really? There are people who seem to thrive on conflict, yes, but most of us don't particularly like it. I remember years ago going to a therapist, and I was confused because someone I was angry with, and I knew they were angry with me, were refusing to talk about their anger. And being a therapist, I become much more accustomed to talking about anger, even though it's difficult. And my therapist at the time looked at me and said, Margaret, where in the world did you get the idea that people are comfortable in talking about anger? And I had to laugh. I don't know where. I certainly had learned that they aren't. But you can learn how to do it and how to control your mad or your defensiveness or your resentment. Because you can learn to not get defensive and say, for example, when things are getting overwhelming and that you need to withdraw or go for a walk around the block or go let off some steam. But then what you say is, I need to take a break from this conversation, but let's continue it tonight. You're withdrawing, but you're letting the other person know that the conversation is important to you. That way, trust is built when you do come back to the discussion, having calmed down. And guess what? You're learning a new skill in the process. I have no problem with withdrawal when it's accompanied by caring, meaning I need to withdraw. I'm getting overwhelmed. My thoughts are getting all messed up. Can we come back to this tomorrow or can we sleep on it and talk about it early in the morning? I'll get up early with you. Something where you address your partner's need or desire to talk about it, but you also say, yes, it's important to me too. And I need to learn how to do this but I'm getting overwhelmed. That's perfectly all right. These are only four of the many justifications I hear as a therapist for withdrawal. But I can promise you that if both people take responsibility for their own choices and reactions, refrain from being critical, respect their differences in the toleration of conflict, or hearing about disappointment, try to reduce the drama of those conversations by keeping them as objective as possible. You don't use language that blames or is critical. You note defensiveness when it happens in yourself, and you admit it. I'll never forget that one time my husband and I were trying to talk about our own differences in handling conflict and in handling things that were difficult to talk about. And my husband said, Margaret, it's like I'm standing in the middle of a tornado. It's vortex, and you're whipping all around me because you're the tornado. 
and I really want to reach out my hand, but I'm afraid it's going to get ripped off. <laughs> Whoa, that was a insightful moment for both of us. So I looked at him and I said, okay, I know I can be intense sometimes. What I'll do is slow down if you'll risk reaching out. And I think after 30 years, we're better at that. Not perfect, but we're better. All of these skills are possible. And you could actually learn to learn from conflict rather than avoid it. Or be the approacher and constantly feel lonely. Here's our listener email for today. Let's hear this young woman's question as she asks it. Hi, Dr. Margaret. Thank you so much for this blog post that somehow I just stumbled upon. I'm going to do the questionnaire, but definitely sounds like it's ticking some boxes. Um, I'm someone who's been suggested I should see a therapist or do therapy at some point, but I've never made it a big enough priority to actually go and find someone that fits and works. The first therapy session I went to in a long time, they just wanted to prescribe me sleeping pills to help me sleep more because I feel like I am most likely on the spectrum of bipolar disorder. But I don't have problems sleeping at all. Your article hit uh, pretty close to home, so probably should read your book, and I'm going to start listening to your podcast. And uh, since quarantine is making it hard for me to find a good therapist, uh, my biggest question would be, how can I find a therapist that will fit well with me? What tips would you give for someone trying to find it? Because I think that's one of the hardest parts of trying to start therapy. Thanks. You know, finding a therapist can be easy, but finding the right therapist can be much more difficult. And I understand that it's fraught with a lot of concern. You want to find somebody you can trust. You want to find someone who gets you. You want to find someone who you can afford. You want to find someone who really tune in. It's interesting that with online therapists, like with the BetterHelp thing that you've been hearing about, you can try someone out once and then move on to someone else if you don't feel an instant connection. I think traditional therapy is a little harder. First, it usually involves more time and maybe more money. That depends. And it's more vulnerable going to talk to someone live. Sometimes people tell me even that when that happens, they feel like they have to go back because the therapist gets out their schedule or their phone or whatever and says, well, when would you like to come back? It's like, oh, well, um, I'm not sure. Well, um, and the therapist just sits there and looks at you. <laughs> so sometimes it's okay to say, you know, I want to think about this session and consider whether I want to come back. Boom. That's fine. I usually ask people if they need more time. Would you like a few days to think about whether you want to come back? And they can say yes or no. But I also wonder when I get this question about finding a therapist, is if vulnerability is really at the heart of the problem. I've made lots of specific recommendations about finding a therapist, and there's a link in your show notes to episode 114, How to Find and Interview a Potential Therapist, in which I talk about the fact that you can request to talk briefly before the first interview. And if they won't, I wouldn't go to them. You can ask at that time what their expertise is in and if they have specific training in your particular issue. But mostly in that phone call, you can get a sense of who they are and how it feels to talk with them, if it's comfortable or not, if you feel as if they are trying to tune in or not. 
But I also know that when I've tried a new therapist, I'm well aware of telling my story once again, or maybe for you the first time, and it is not easy. And there's really not a way to make it easier. It's going to feel vulnerable. Of course, depending on how much you actually reveal, some people reveal a lot. Some people will say in a second session that they feel like they just vomited all over me. (laughs) But other people are much more slow to reveal, and that is absolutely fine. Of course, the best way to find a therapist is to reveal to people you trust that you're looking for one. I'm always honored when my former clients refer people to me. So I think it's actually a far better way to do it that way, just like you find a plumber or a medical doctor by referral. But for those who, again, have trouble with that vulnerability, even perfectly hidden depression, as I've written about, that's more difficult. I get it. All in all, it may be easier, though, and something definitely to consider. Perhaps I should say this now. I've been extremely touched, maybe because of COVID, maybe because of my own insecurities and anxieties, but some of you have left some very, very meaningful and kind comments on Apple Podcasts. For example, I'm so grateful for the time, clarity, and expertise you provide to us. I'd only listen to two podcasts when I referred self-work to a younger woman that I mentor. The podcast has been a godsend to me because I never knew that Perfectly Hidden Depression exists. I absolutely love that I came across this podcast in my search for exactly, as the title suggests, self-work. One of the reviews says, You can hear the genuine empathy she has for her listeners. She also has a way of explaining what are often complex topics that can be difficult to understand in ways that the average person can grasp. I guess I want to say this. You know, I get to sit and talk into this microphone, and I can envision all of you listening, and it can feel like a very intimate relationship. And I have wanted to do this for you because this is the way it can feel with a therapist that's tuned in. There are so many really excellent therapists out there. There are some ones that aren't so hot, and you want to see if you can avoid that. But I promise you there's some people who are there with such good intentions, who also have a lot of experience, and who want to guide and help you feel secure and stable in a therapeutic relationship so that you can risk and be vulnerable and change your life in a way that would be meaningful to you. So please, if you're searching for a therapist, keep looking, ask around, and I certainly hope that you find them. Thank you so very much for being here at Self Work today. I have something really exciting happening this week. By the time you're listening to this on Friday, I will have done my own interview with John Moe, who's the author of The Hilarious World of Depression. In fact, I was motivated in the last episode to talk more about my own story because of John's story in his book. And I'm eager to talk with him. I'm a little nervous about doing the interview myself, but I think I'm pretty geared up. And I'm sure he'll be very kind. I'm not sure when I'm going to actually publish that, but it's coming soon. And I'm going to take the podcast a little bit in that direction. I thought about it a long time ago, did a few interview podcasts, and there were some complaints that it sort of got in the way of our relationship. So I will definitely name those even something else. It won't just be self-work. It'll be something like self-work conversations. So if you're interested and you want to listen, great, you can. 
But if you prefer this mode of being with me, then you can stick to that. You'll have a choice. But there are a lot of people out there with a lot of ideas that could really help you. And I'd love for self-work to be a place where you can listen to those ideas and also keep on having a conversation with me. I also found out this week, much to my joy and honor, that the book Perfectly Hidden Depression is really doing much better than I thought it was. As far as sales are concerned, and I'm not really concerned about sales, I'm concerned about the message getting out. So thank you to those of you who have helped that by writing a review or giving me a rating on especially Amazon or anywhere that you buy a book. Again, it's available in audiobook, ebook, or paperback. And its message is so very important for those of you who may count on the perfect looking life to help you hide from your own despair or loneliness. There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can subscribe there. That's a really easy way to keep in touch with me and the blog post and the podcast because it's all there in one weekly newsletter. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com, and I will read all of those. I may or may not be able to get back with you, but I promise I will also try to weave your question into one of my listener emails. You can join me on Instagram at Instagram.com slash DrMargaretRutherford. I'm actually doing a series on what I've learned as a therapist. And I love doing this because it's truly some of the little gems that I've picked up. And I match them with a graphic. And I don't know, I love doing it. And I'm going all the way up to 100. Today, let's see the day I record this, I'm doing number 29. So come join me over there at Instagram.com slash DrMargaretRutherford. And last but not least, I have a Facebook group, closed, facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And don't forget to answer the questions. Thank you again. You have my gratitude. Please take very good care. Stay safe and sane. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.